0: this episode of the metropolitan opera guild podcast is brought to you by maestro classics the creators of stories in music a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together featuring the london philharmonic orchestra stories in music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets from peter and the wolf and the story of swan lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster. These recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. You may
1: have heard the music of Mozart's Die Zaubeflirte dozens of times, but today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we explore the opera from a new perspective, the
0: bassoons. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org.
1: Mozart's Die Zalbeflöte is full of memorable moments. While the flute in this opera is particularly magical, a whole orchestra of instruments brings the music to life, each serving a unique and specialized function within the score. I'm Stuart Holt, and today we are pleased to welcome Guild lecturer Naomi Baratera and the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra's principal bassoonist, William Short, to take us on a journey through Mozart's famous work from the perspective of the bassoon.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our episode today. I am very excited to have with me here in our Opera Learning Center the principal bassoonist of the Met Opera Orchestra, William Short. Welcome, Billy. Hi,
3: thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: So today we're talking about the bassoon, and we're talking about the bassoon within the opera, the magic flute, essentially looking at what is the role of the instrument, what do they do in different parts of the score, in different parts of the opera, and get a better sense of the magic flute from the perspective of one particular instrument. So to start with, I think it's Good for us to learn a little bit about the instrument itself and the instrument family, so we have some context for what the bassoon actually is before we talk about the music. So can you talk about how it is constructed, what family it's in, how does it make noise?
3: Sure. So the bassoon is what's called a double reed instrument. And basically what that means is the sound producing part of the instrument, the the reed, is composed of two pieces of cane is what we call it uh, but it's it's a weed called a donax that starts out looking similar to bamboo and they're sort of strapped together and they vibrate against each other you know with a single reed instrument like the clarinet or the saxophone you have one piece of cane vibrating against a stationary mouthpiece with a double reed instrument like the bassoon or the oboe there there are two pieces of cane vibrating against each other and by themselves the reeds just sound something like this so, not necessarily a sound that many people would spend money to, to come here, But when you put it on the instrument itself, it hopefully sounds a little bit nicer. And so the bassoon is the lowest member commonly used in the woodwind family, and therefore it's also the largest. So when you see a bassoon, you see this sort of one long wooden tube, But what you may not realize is that it's actually a tube that doubles back on itself. The sound starts at the reed, travels all the way to the bottom of the instrument, and then doubles back around and goes all the way to the top. So the bassoon itself is somewhere around seven, eight feet long, actually.
2: I know that making your reeds is a big part of your kind of daily life as a musician. So can you talk a little bit about why do you make your reeds instead of buying your reeds mm-hmm. and kind of the craft of reed making? This
3: is this is a subject that I could easily spend several hours talking about and and with my poor students I often do. So I'll try <laughs> I'll try and keep it brief. So The reed is an absolutely essential part of of the instrument. I'll often say that 60% of my job is showing up with a decent reed because playing on a really bad reed is sort of akin to trying to play a percussion instrument with a wet noodle instead of a stick. It just doesn't work. And so the things that, that the reed can affect are not only the sound quality, but what pitch center you're playing at, The variety of dynamics that you can play at you know if you if you ever hear a bassoon go rather than that's more often than not a function of the reed when you hear that right and so on the subject of why we don't buy our reeds reeds themselves are very very specialized not only to the individual player but to the role that player plays and also to the particular instrument that the person is playing on. I play principal bassoon, which means that my primary job is to be very comfortable in what we call the tenor register of the instrument, sort of, you know, in that, in that register of the instrument. So it's a priority of me and my reeds that I not have to work too hard there. The second bassoon's role is just as important as the principal bassoon's and is just as specialized, but their role is much more about being able to play soft and low and and in a more supportive vein. It's less about projecting and more about matching, and that requires a very different read. You know, my colleague who I'm sitting right next to, I couldn't necessarily just trade reads with in the middle of a show. And and so they're, they're a very specialized element of the instrument and I think the overwhelming majority of people would agree that you really have to sort of control that process for yourself.
2: So how many reeds do you have with you today?
3: Today I have six.
2: And how many are in your kind of normal rotation or arsenal?
3: As many as possible. I'll I'll tell you that what I what I try to do because playing at the Met kills reeds very quickly. Reeds last you know, for, for a traditional symphony job maybe maybe a week or two before they start to lose that quality of pitch, the quality of sound, the quality of, of response and, and dynamic range. Here because the services are, are so long, because performances can can go can go for such a long time, it kills reads very quickly. And so the sort of pipeline that I try and maintain is I try to make two reads a day so 14 a week, and out of those, on average, about one out of six uh, will be of sufficient quality that I feel like I can play them in front of people.
2: So how long does it take you to make one read?
3: So it's a process that I start in the summer, actually, uh, when, when I have more time to just get sort of this rote grunt work out of the way, because you, you start, or at least I start, from what's called tube cane, which really does just look like a tube of bamboo, and then you go through a series of, of specialized processes to get it to a very exact shape and thickness and stuff to an accuracy of about a hundredth of a millimeter. And so that I try and get out of the way during about a truly awful two-week span of the of the summer where I don't really shave and I don't really go out or shower and I just sort of sit at the reed desk all day. But then I don't have to think about it for the next 50 weeks, which is awesome. And then, you know, during during the season... To make those those two reads and to do some preparatory work on, on a few more that just allows me to keep on maintaining that process, I'll probably spend between an hour and a half and two hours a day making reads has been what it's been averaging out to lately.
2: Moving towards the bassoon within the context of the orchestra and within the opera, the opera we're looking at is Mozart's Die Zauberflöte, or The Magic Flute. And this is an opera that he wrote towards the end of his life. And this is around the time where orchestras actually looked a little bit different than what we generally see today in uh, symphonic concert music. So there were some instruments that did not exist yet. And so can you talk a little bit just about the role of the bassoon in a mozartian orchestra.
3: Yeah, so the stereotype of the bassoon, which I'll freely admit is well deserved, is that it's sort of the clown of the orchestra. And there are certainly moments in this opera where I think we fit that role to a T. But the bassoon can can serve a lot of different functions that we'll certainly explore through this opera. You know, it can serve as the base of a woodwind family sort of chorale. It can play in unison with the violas and cellos and and add more depth and sort of punch and substance to that sound. It can be a lyrical solo instrument in its own right. So really one of the most fascinating things, and Mozart was an absolute master at this, is to explore those varying roles that you can play, that you can step from one to the next to the next and sort of maximize the the character and the commitment in each of those different functions.
2: Why don't we start at the beginning of the opera to go through some of these different characters that we Mm -hmm. find in the bassoon role throughout. So the overture is one of the most famous overtures in all of opera, and it does open aside from these big three majestic chords, with this kind of fugue-like melody. Mm-hmm. And that's a melody that gets passed throughout the instruments of the orchestra. So what kind of role does the bassoon play in that passing of the theme?
3: Yeah, so I, I think that what we're doing here is we're really, you know, we're playing in unison with the lower strings, with the cello and the basses. And our role is, again, to, to sort of add a, a little bit more stuff to their sound, but to also really accentuate this light, that very light and bouncy quality that the bassoon does do, I think, so well. So in, in the very opening, we're playing with the celli, and then we switch to, to playing with basses. Later on, we'll, we'll have contrapuntal lines, or we'll be filling out the harmony of, of the line. But, you know, right at the beginning of the fugue, and then at that point we're playing in unison with the basses. Etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But then you you have other moments where the strings are are playing this role, and you know, they're playing the and meanwhile, we have this this wonderful line, just, just a simple scale, but in typical Mozart fashion, it just becomes the most glorious, elegant, satisfying thing to play.
2: So, why don't we listen to some of these moments? In the overture so first we'll start with what Billy just played with that opening theme where the bassoon is paired with the lower strings listen for the part even though this recording is the texture of the whole orchestra see if you can pick out as you're listening that bassoon line within the texture the opening, we're going to drop in a little bit closer to that lyrical descending scale just so you can hear the bassoon kind of floating to the front of the orchestral texture. The next aria that comes up that I thought would be really interesting to talk about is the Queen of the Night's first big moment because the bassoon has an interesting role in the orchestra in that particular orchestration. So can you talk a little bit about this? This is when the Queen of the Night makes her appearance to Tamino and charges him with going to rescue her daughter from Zarastro.
3: Yeah, so the bassoon line really starts increase in importance when we get to to the beautiful slow music in this aria after the introduction, where we have this really gorgeous line with uh, with the oboe, and then in another typical sort of changing changing roles moment the oboe drops out and we're just playing this line with the violas that is not the primary line, we're still very much supporting the, the singer, we're listening to her but we've got this independent line <clears throat> just as you're running out of breath, back comes the oboe line. And so that's that's what I mean by, you know, we have this constantly shifting role within the orchestra, each of which requires a, a different approach to the expression. Right, Where playing with the oboe, we're really not only trying to project our own musical idea out into the audience, but we're trying to do it in a way that supports our colleagues sitting right in front of us, the oboe, and matches the singer on stage. Whereas when we're playing with the violas, our goal is, is much more to create a beautiful musical line using sort of simpler tools at our disposal where it's much more about just sustaining a simple line with, with a, a beautiful sound, sort of warm vibrato, but it's not the same kind of hard on your sleeve kind of expression.
4: <laughs> ¶¶
2: next one that's kind of on our list to talk about, I think connects with what you were saying about the bassoon being a bit of a clown in the orchestra. So this is the Quintet number 5, and it actually opens up with Papageno having his mouth padlocked because the three ladies have uh, basically punished him for lying to Tamino about slaying the dragon. And so this is obviously a very comic moment at the opening of this. So how does the bassoon hook into the clown role in this particular excerpt?
3: So we have this really funny moment where, where Papageno is is singing this, right? And the, and the bassoon is just bringing out that funny character. And again, this sort of ties in with the idea of the bassoon as the clown of the orchestra. And I, I totally welcome that characterization because look, it's something the bassoon does really well. But it's also just funny to note that this is the moment that everyone remembers the bassoon playing in this in this opera with all these gorgeous lines that we get to play all this huge variety. This is the bassoony moment of the opera, to be to be honest.
4: Okay,
3: and this this moment, you know, the the nice thing about playing these staccato passages on the bassoon is that it's really easy, you know, to just play. You know anyone could do so so the 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 nice thing about a passage like this is th- this kind of really staccato really humorous playing is Not difficult on the bassoon. What we sort of have to look out for in this passage are, are the slurs actually the Those those three in particular all of them sort of don't really want to want to speak, and so it's actually fairly easy to to have one of them not not sound quite so hot. So we have this interesting mix where we can take the, these staccato notes for granted, but we really sort of have to be very careful with our air, with with our embouchure, you know, our, our lip pressure and placement on the reed to make sure that that these pairs of notes in between the staccato notes come out nice and cleanly and evenly and
5: characterfully. Ich kann nicht tun, als ich beklagen, weil ich zu schwach zu helfen bin. Ich kann nicht tun, als ich beklagen, weil ich zu schwach zu helfen bin. Weil ich zu schwach zu helfen bin. Weil ich zu schwach zu helfen bin. Zu zu helfen bin. Die
4: Königin meint, die Geschichte lässt die Straße
5: nur and rauderst Papagino wieder. Raude, lüge du nicht jede. Ich lüge nicht nach mir, nein, nein. Die Schloss soll deine und sein. Ich Schloss soll meine Wahl. Soll, soll deine, soll deine, soll deine sein. Sein. Wir können doch die Regner alle ein, ein solches Schloss verändern
4: und statt Kasper.
3: Yeah, so throughout this quintet we fill a lot of different roles where, you know, we might have a moment that's not particularly interesting on its own. Something like where we're just filling out the bottom voice of a harmonic progression in the winds or something like where fulfilling that role of adding a little bit more bite to a string line. You know, throughout we always have this constantly shifting possibility. You know, one one of my favorite moments in this just because I can never take it for granted despite how simple it sounds is which sounds so simple, but it's so easy to get finger twisted in in this and and sort of end up off on some weird note pattern that you never intended to get to. And what we're doing there is we're adding sound to the viola line. You know, it'll, it'll actually happen where, like, one of my wonderful violist colleagues will say, Hey, looking forward to our bassoon viola night tonight because in this opera in particular, and in, in Mozart in general, we have so much music together, and I'm, I'm lucky that we have such a great viola section that I sit right next to, that sort of serves as my anchor to know, am I reasonably in tune? Am I sort of together with them? You know, they're, they're,
4: they're great. <laughs>
5: Ruff, 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 ruff. Jetzt, der mich in Wunden lebe. Der schönste Prinz, der Himmel-Line. Doch der darfst du sein Kind sein. Doch schwarter Prinz, mein Teufel, meine, mein Leben ist mir lieb. Am Ende schleicht bei meiner Liebe her von mir wie ein Lieb. Hier nimmt dies Kleinodem, stößt du hey, ein. Hey. Ein, ein, was wird da drinnen sein? Nein, Für Werde ich sie auch wohl spielen können? Oh, ganz gewiss.
2: Uh, Do we have any theories or do we know why that pairing works so beautifully together? I'm guessing a lot of it is pitch range of the instruments match, but is there more to it, do you think, than just that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think
3: particularly through the classical and and romantic era, we were sort of exploring which combinations of, of instruments blend most beautifully and most naturally you know, sort of the flute and the oboe blend extremely well. The bassoon and the clarinet blend extremely well. I think the bassoon and the and the viola, or the bassoon and the cello blend very well. You know, instruments that occupy reasonably the same range, and for whatever reason, I'm not an acoustician, but when they are played together well, they sort of create this new third sound, where it's not a flute or an oboe, it's a flobo and it's not a bassoon and a clarinet it's a clarinoon, or or heaven forbid a bassinet (laughs) and and you know as, as we got into the 20th century with with these orchestrational geniuses Ravel you know Stravinsky we started to have these these much more unconventional instrument combinations but I think What Mozart and those who came, you know, before and after him were doing were really exploring the most natural combinations of instruments.
2: A natural melding of timbres that just has a magical effect when played together.
3: I I think so.
2: All right, so the Act 1 finale opens with the three boys, or the three magic spirits, where does the bassoon fit into this finale? i see in the score that it plays a little bit with the three boys. That's where it starts. So what does it do when the three boys are singing, and where do we go from there?
3: I mean, for, for the most part, all we're doing right now is trying to provide simple harmonic support for them and stay out of the way as much as humanly possible. So, you know, when we were talking about Reed's, I mentioned that the range of dynamics that you could play was largely determined by by the read. This moment is a perfect example of why that's so important because you know you've got these these three amazing children up there singing, and I just want to say for a moment how blown away I am by the fact that they can get up there and sing in harmony in front of thirty eight hundred people. I mean, as, as an instrumentalist, at least I always have something between the audience and me. I have a physical instrument that, you know, if I put down all of the right fingers and I'm reasonably functional in my embouchure, and my air, something resembling the right note will usually come out. I'm just in awe of any singer, but especially these, these kids. But when you're listening to them play, you don't want to hear me down there playing... That's not what you paid good money to to come see that evening. And so I'm playing as softly as I'm physically capable at this moment. And this is when it's really important to have that responsive read so that that's possible.
2: So that you are supporting what the three boys are singing and not sticking out with your own bassoon solo.
3: Supporting, not competing.
2: That's a good way of putting the vast majority of what orchestral musicians do. It is one giant collaborative work and you're not competing with each other, you're working together. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's, can you play just a bit of what you do at the beginning of this and then we'll listen to it within the orchestral context. Yeah, and
3: it's actually worth, worth noting that at this moment your face is starting to get pretty tired in the, ah. in the opera and so actually I don't play the opening eight or ten bars of this, the second bassoon plays that and then I come in when the, the children actually start singing.
2: Moving into kind of the middle of act two, or the second half of the opera, we come to number 16 and 17, which are big bassoon moments. So let's start with number 16, the trio. What is happening in the bassoon at this moment? Why is it such an important part?
3: This is, this is another moment where, where the sort of natural humorous character of the instrument can come out. But here, it's very quickly juxtaposed with a more lyrical character. And I mean this is something that's that's so typical of Mozart where in one moment you'll be playing in one character and then just at the drop of the hat you have to change character again. So in this case you have this And then immediately after in context when everything is put together they form this and it really requires this immediate adjustment of approach to the instrument. You know, the other thing to note is these little trills, the bayum bayum, are very awkward if you use what what we would call full fingerings. In other words, the natural. You know, if you tell me to play an F sharp, here are the fingers that I would put down on the instrument. And so this passage requires the use of trill fingerings, essentially, sort of. F- fake I use air quotes with that because I don't really think of them as fake but fingerings that if you were to play them slowly wouldn't sound so good so if I play this slowly using what I would actually play in context not so pleasant right it's, it's it becomes impossible to sustain actually and even when it is being sustained it's not great sounding but when you speed it up
2: it works okay. Okay. What would full fingering sound like?
3: So you can hear that, that the notes come out. It just sounds very labored because I'm having to move a whole lot of fingers in a whole lot of directions all at once.
2: It looks much harder.
3: It is much harder. That's yes. that's exactly what, what it is.
2: So you have these fast trill moments moving into lyrical moments let's now hear those in the context of the recording so we'll listen to a little bit of 16 to try and pick out the bassoon within this moment that comes right after this there's a little bit of dialogue but then the next big aria comes which is Pamina's Ahikfus, which is really what I think one of the most beautiful moments in the opera and incredibly heart-wrenching and emotional because she and Tamino have met but Tamino cannot speak to her because he is in the middle of the trial of silence if he speaks to her then He will never enter the Brotherhood, he will never win her. And so even though he can see it hurts her, he knows that he's doing this for their greater good. But she doesn't have all that information. So she sings this beautiful aria all about the grief and sadness that she's feeling at this disconnect between them. So what is the bassoon doing in this beautiful moment?
3: Well, for a while, the bassoon is just sitting and waiting and sort of getting slightly more and more and more nervous because you, this, this is such a glorious aria, and it's so sort of spare orchestrationally. There's very little actually going on that you really don't want to ruin the mood by, by even sort of the slightest little, little mishap. But the, the first entrance of the bassoon is simultaneously, I think, one of the most beautiful and one of the simplest things that we play in the entire opera. It's just this, this downward scale with a note at the end that just blends into the oboe entrance. Even though this is is such a simple moment, there's still a lot of depth to be discovered in that moment because if you think about the key that we're in. this sad G minor, and in G minor, you know, if you think of this G minor chord, that's sort of our home base in this key and in this aria, well, our first note is, it's a very expressive note in the key because it's it's so close to being in that home base chord, but it's not. The closer you are without actually being there, the more dissonant it feels. And so you've got this really expressive note that we're starting on. But it's not the kind of aria where you can just, you know, sort of feel that note all over the audience and just go... You know, I I think playing like that might be a fireable offense in, in some places. What you look for is a way to make it sort of maximally expressive without being in your face, just to sort of reflect what's going on in the plot and how the singer is, is singing it. And then as you go through, you sort of develop dynamically, emotionally. And, and what I try to do here is to move through it rhythmically so that it doesn't get monotonous and almost end up ever so slightly ahead of the string accompaniment just to sort of encourage the direction, the motion through the line.
2: Number 19, which is the trio, and this is getting us towards the end. As I'm looking at the score here in front of us, there's a lot of rhythmic action happening in the bassoon, and but a lot of the same rhythmic patterns. So can you explain for us what is the bassoon doing here? Is it difficult? Is it hard? What's its role?
3: Yeah, so here we're sort of back with our old buddies, the violas, all the way, all the way through. And really what we're doing is sort of adding some rhythmic propulsiveness so that it's not just one, two, one, two. We're adding this um, so, so that we're always keeping things moving forward. Now, what I find most important musically in this is that it not become accented. If you're playing... then it completely defeats the purpose of trying to keep things moving. Because you feel so much weight on every single one of these entrances that it becomes very much about one, two, one. And so my goal in this is to come in on each one of these notes after a rest without an accent and to just sustain the note before the rest very gracefully and uh, right up until the rest so that we really get the sense that even though there are these pauses that the phrase is always continuing,
4: etc
3: etc so that so that we're sort of Always going toward this downbeat that doesn't come actually for about 35 more measures. This is this is another moment where the second bassoon actually takes over for about four measures in the middle of this. But in in my experience, thanks to you know our, our wonderful colleagues' support in that way, endurance isn't necessarily the, the main problem because you do have, you know, basically twenty-five percent of the time you have the opportunity to rest a little bit, to take a breath to sometimes exhale if you've tanked up on too much air, you know. There's the opportunity to stay comfortable, but some of these are sort of a little bit treacherous, you know, sort of similar to earlier where we were talking about in the the quintet, the... where these are sort of treacherous slurs that don't want to speak entirely cleanly. Here is, is somewhat similar, where if we've got
4: you
3: know those are those are somewhat dangerous and that's sort of what you're thinking before this is man I don't want to screw this up because because it, it, looking at at this this long series of notes you sort of see that you have all these opportunities to make one little mistake but then in the moment you just sort of have to block all that out Because it's one of those things where if you think about the entirety of your task, it becomes overwhelming. But if you just focus three notes at a time, technically, as opposed to musically, where you're thinking much longer term. But if you're thinking three notes at a time, technically, it becomes much more manageable.
2: Let's listen to this excerpt. Really listen for the bassoon and listen for what Billy was describing with intentionally avoiding putting accents on the first Note of those groups of three in order to keep this feeling of perpetual motion going in the bassoon part
5: mm-hmm. Oh <laughs>
2: into the middle of the finale to the whole opera we're actually picking up at a point that is my personal favorite moment and this is where Tamino and Pamina are finally reunited and they get to see each other and speak to each other finally. Tamino is about to go through the trials and Pamina sings wait let me go with you together we'll See this through. And so she sings, Tamino, mine, bum 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 bum. And then he replies, bum bum da-da-da-da-da-da-dum bum 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 bum. But then it leads into what Billy says is his favorite moment.
3: It is, and, and you know, along the lines of what you're saying, this this moment where where Pamina sings this this first, Yi. There are moments I think for all of us where we envy what another performer gets to, gets to play or sing. This is, this is one of those moments for me where it's just so unbelievably beautiful that, that I just, I can't say I'm consumed with jealousy because I just enjoy the moment too much, but, but it just, it strikes me that it must be so satisfying to sing. But you know, at this point we've been performing for quite a while, you know, our face in some cases is, is feeling like a couple of slabs of meat a little bit. But then out of this, we get this glorious bassoon solo. It's just, for me, the most satisfying moment in the, in the, in the opera to play. Similarly to that, you know, it's it's a less melodic thing, but actually in this next phrase, the very last note is bassoon alone. And it's something that we could easily... You know, just play that last note gently and, and coming away and simply... For me, this moment just requires more expression. And so this this last note, sort of maximally expressive in my mind.
2: this big celebration and all ends well I mean there's a little queen of the night moment in there where she tries to come back but there's this final finale so does the bassoon get any fun parts right at the end of this hurrah
3: well near the end actually are two of the more sort of technical moments in the in the bassoon part you know where that very opening of the overture the those turns are are something that you sort of worry about a little bit from a technical standpoint I would say the the other primary ones are are right here near the end where in one case you have this which is maybe a little bit more virtuosic than you've heard for most of the evening and might associate with the bassoon <laughs> And then we have this really fun little passage with the flute where we play. It's really kind of a, a nice little moment where you just get to sort of let the bassoon be the bassoon.
5: Blink and flack and my, my little here my, my, dear. My, dear. My, dear. My, dear.
2: We've come to the end of the opera and what an interesting journey we've gone on going through the score from the perspective of the bassoon and not just the bassoon part, but also the bassoonist or the bassoon player. So thank you so much. William Short, for being with us today and sharing with us so much insight into this opera. Do you have anything to share with us about the activities of the orchestra these days?
3: Yeah, you know, uh, we have a website that we update regularly with content similar to this, where we sort of dive deeper beneath the surface into what it's like playing in an opera orchestra, what it's like being at the Met, and you can find that at www.medorchestramusicians.org. We also document activities around the community. We've performed for veterans in the past year. We're actively involved in outreach to local children and just generally spreading the love of music
1: and opera.
2: I could not have said it better. So thank you so much for being with us. And thank you, everyone, for listening.
1: That was William Short, Principal Bassoonist of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, and Guild Lecturer Naomi Beratera, talking about the role of the bassoon in Mozart's Die Zabeflörte. The Metropolitan Opera Live in HD broadcast of Die Zabeflörte is coming to theaters across the globe this Saturday, October the 14th. Check your local movie listings or visit metopera.org for more info. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.